right, guys. I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to No Limits, a Mitch Rap podcast. So how are you doing this week, Mike? Hey, I'm good, but I know you have a lot going on with your doctorate and dissertation uh, being done soon, right? Yeah, I'm about to submit it tomorrow, actually, so nice. That, that's good. But uh, I'm taking some time to carve out for the pod, so that's always been a nice reprieve from the science. Indeed. And we got a good book this time. I'm excited oh. about our December book of the month. We have a great book. What what a great book to actually get me motivated to do this, <laughs> to carve out some time, you know? Like, I don't know how motivated I would have been with, you know, our last book or or, or the previous one. Or I like yeah. Separation of Power, but yeah. yeah, I'm glad we did Executive Power um, in November. Yeah. And then, I mean, let, we got a great two months here with Memorial Day now and then Consent to Kill to kick off 2021. It's going to be yes. a great way to ring in the new year. It'll be a, be a great time. Yes, indeed. But I I do have some sad news to tell you. So, you know that Mitch Rapp lives glass you got me. Of course, Caroline, my wife, Caroline, gets out a, a glass to drink water, and she puts it in a place it's not supposed to be. And my son, being the crazy, crazy person he is, <laughs> jumping off like everything, knocks it over. And I hear this crash, and I was like, "What glass was that?" And she was like, uh, "I don't know, just some random glass." <laughs> of course, it's my brand new glass, my Mitchell blue glass. I was I was very sad. Just but, an uh, object, man. Just an object. I know. It's replacement. I know. Oh, but I had I had to tell you that. So yeah. Oh, too bad. Well, I'll keep uh, I'll keep drinking beer out of mine too. I'll drink double the beer out of mine to uh, make up for it. How about that? Sounds good. Sounds like a good compromise. <laughs> so. Anyways, we do have a, a little bit of an admin for you guys uh, before we get into today's show. Um, so if you, if any of you heard our little announcement we published earlier last week um, and then we took it down, we have launched a t-shirt shop with some uh, Mitrab Pod swag. If you wanted to get a t-shirt with our logo, due to some complications, we couldn't put all the stuff on there that we wanted to, but we are still able to sell our t-shirt with the Mitrab Pod logo. If you want to support that, you can go to our shop uh, at Teespring. There's a button on our website, mitrabpod.com. And we still have our um, promo codes. So for anyone listening to the podcast, they can get 10% off any order placed in the month of December. It's promo code no limits, as well as our patrons can get a special 25% off, and we'll be sending you that code shortly. So, yeah, I uh, just wanted to update you with that. Second, uh, we have our December book giveaway, which is, again, a winner's choice. So we have Executive Power, Pursuit of Honor, Extreme Measures, and The Survivor. So uh, these are the only only the four autographed books that you have left. So if you want to get into that, uh, you can sign up to be a patron, as well as anyone who's already a patron has you know their name in that running. We'll do some giveaway after these four autographed books are gone, but... I'm not parting with any more of my collection. I think that'll be about seven or eight of my autographed Flynn books that we gave away to our patrons and our listeners. So uh, I'm keeping the rest. I'm keeping Memorial Day, keeping American Assassin, um, Kill Shot, Last Man, Survivor. So I'm not parting with those. So it's your last four books that you might win. Well, I'm sure Rosie, Rosie was happy that she could get rid of any of them. So that's all that matters. That's right. Yeah, and so next uh, later on in this month, we'll be doing uh, announcing our next philanthropic work uh, that we have planned for the year of 2021. 
So we look forward to sharing you more about that. As well on that pod, when we announce it, we're going to announce our, our final donation that we're going to give to the Prostate Cancer Foundation. So we have a decent amount. So yeah, look out for that pod in the future. Yeah. If you become a patron this month, we will add to our donation total that we will be giving to the fight to end prostate cancer. And then I'm really excited, like you said, Chris, to announce at the end of the calendar year here, our next mission, a really great nonprofit organization we've been partnering with. And just a little hint, it involves three of our favorite things, books, troops, and veterans. So pretty awesome uh, charity that we're going to give back to on the podcast. Nice. So any, any more admin? I think that's all the announcements that we have going on. I'm excited. Let's get into it, right? Today we are covering... The first half of the fifth book in the Mitch Rapp series, and Vince's sixth book overall in the universe, the Rapp universe, and that's Memorial Day. We're going to be getting through the prelude all the way up to chapter 48. It's about the halfway point of the book. And then next week, we'll be giving you our part two, our final wrap-up of the book, all the way to the very end with our winners and losers, final rating our covers discussion. You know, Chris, I got a couple of interesting covers of Memorial Day. Personally, I've never seen before. So next week, I always enjoy talking to you about that. Yeah, looking forward to that. Now, since we're starting a book review, I guess you could say my thoughts on this book are best summed up in the form of a double limerick. You don't say. What do you think? Let's hear it. All right. Interrogating terrorists like a madman, directing Delta Force operations in Pakistan, it's all hands on deck to prevent a terrible wreck. Thank God that Rap is our point man. This, the sixth book of Flynn, is definitely the linchpin, stimulating the series without Anna and her queries. My favorite all-time thriller this has been. I'd have to say, Mike, that is probably your best limerick yet. You think so? I, 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 I truly. Oh. You know, you, 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 you throw in some some nice descriptions there that you know about the book and about you know the meta text of the book. Uh, really, really brings that home there. I like that. You know, it's funny. Maybe this is one of my favorite books of all time. Both the nostalgia. I, if you heard my origin story, I, I saw this book when I was fifteen years old in Barnes and Noble, and. Um, was the first rap book. One of the first thrillers I've ever read in the genre was completely carried away with it. And it made a big impact on me and um, how I viewed national security uh, and the current the Bush administration at the time and got into politics. I thought I'd be a political science major. And a, a lot of that is due to this book just as a teenager. So there's that. But also, maybe I also liked it because, as I said, Anna without her queries we don't have Anna bugging rap in this one. Maybe that had a little something to do with it. Yeah, that's that's something I, I definitely wanted to bring up with you, and we can get more into it either later this episode or in our next episode. But yeah, I think the fact that she's not in this, um, and I know uh, me personally, I don't like her character that much. Uh, I know uh, there are other people out there that are not a big fan of, of Anna Riley or really, however you want to say it. Um but yeah, I think it's one of the strong points, and I hate to say that about you know like a female character. This these uh, 
Vince tends, we've mentioned this before, Vince tends to struggle to write female characters, although he does a great job, well, I think, with Irene. And then, and then um, Kyle has done a great job integrating some female characters. But yeah, Anna just never really sat well with me. And it's no surprise that we get this book that I, I really think is, you know, Vince here leveling up a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, we were a little, little down in the last couple books. Um, we loved uh, Term Limits. We loved Transfer of Power. And then there was a little lull there in, in, in between. And I think, you know, here, read reading this, I texted you a couple times and I was just like, wow, this mm-hmm. book is really good. Really good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm not going to disagree with you. In the second limerick, I wrote stimulating the series. Like you said, it levels up. I think this one jump starts and really kick starts who rap is and who rap's going to come to be. Uh, this book really, it stands out. It's something special in the series. So, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. All right. Well, we like to start off all of our rereads with just going to good Goodreads. This is not, you know, this is just a forum to measure these books. But, yeah, so on Goodreads, this Memorial Day has a 4.29. And the summary goes like this. So, fighting terrorism on the foreign ground, CIA super agent Mitrap does whatever it takes to protect American freedom. CIA intelligence has courting pointed to a major terrorist attack on the United States just as the nation's capital prepares for a grand Memorial Day tribute to the veterans of, New York, of World War II. Racing to Afghanistan, no, that's wrong, racing to Pakistan, Mitrap leads a commando raid on all Al-Qaeda stronghold in a remote border village and diffuses plans for a nuclear strike on Washington. The crisis averted, the special ops work's done, but Rap knows in the face of a new kind of enemy, nothing is as it seems, and it's up to him alone to avert a disaster of unimaginable proportions. So I, I think, uh, one, that answers our questions, who writes these? I think fans actually write these, or, or yep. readers write these, because uh, it's not Pac- it's not Afghanistan, it's, it's Pakistan. Although but, it's staged in Afghanistan, and they, they daringly cross the border to this village. Oh, you know, true. But, I, guess, I guess it is technically right. But. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good description of where well, we're going to finish today. You know this last line, it's up to him alone to avert a disaster of unimaginable purport- proportions. A-, a little put off by that because we see some secondary characters that I really like in this one and who really play a crucial role. Like people we've seen like Skip and Jack Warch, but we we meet some new people like the Department of Energy um, secretary who we really come to like, Reamer or Reimer, um, a Department of Energy nuclear scientist and specialist in defusing the weapons, um, Hanusek. So I feel like we meet some uh, another cast of characters that play a really crucial role in a team effort to stop the disaster. So I don't know. It's up to Rap alone to stop it. I'm actually glad it's not, you know, that he does have this cast of characters that Flynn writes expertly well. So, Yeah, I, I was going to go into this a little bit more in The Winners and Losers, but I think one of the big winners of this book is this is one of the first novels that we sort of take a step back from getting a lot of Mitch Rap. Although I actually put it as a loser because I want I always want more rap, but sure. I, I do think it, it helps the book, and I think this is sort of the formula going forward: is we see a little bit less of rap, we and you know, very, right off the bat, we're going to talk about this raid, and you know, based off his prior experiences, especially in the last book when he inserted himself into that raid, you know, things went bad, he he got shot, but you know, he he stays on that command ship, he and you know, we're going to get into it in a second, but I think. By pulling back rap a little bit, um, he's still, you know, main character, 
still has all the main punches is, is key in every single element. But I, I think we're seeing a little bit more, uh, like you said, these minor characters or these secondary characters that make the book a little bit better. There's more depth. I, I, I guess, you know, we've, over the past five books, six books, whatever, we're learning who Rap is. At this point, we know we know who he is. Um, and so now we want to learn a little bit more about the universe, building this world. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, just to go into how much I love this book, and we're going we're gonna to kick off the summary in a minute here, but you open past the dust jacket to the inside cover. It's a map of the National Mall. I'm a map yeah, that nerd. that's pretty cool. I'm an American history geek. And seeing that, I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. You open to the back inside cover, or the back cover, if you will, and it's a map of Pakistan and at the Afghanistan border. And I'm just loving it right off the bat, having these maps. I don't think we had maps in any of the earlier books. I feel like term limits could have done well with one, but I don't think it was there. Yeah. I and then also just, you know, you know you're going to judge a book a, a little bit by its cover and somewhat by its dedication. And I feel like Vince gets this one. To the men and women who serve. It's simple. It's fitting. It's meaningful. Brilliant move. Honestly, even in the first two pages of this book, just the inside cover and the dedication, I could tell I'm going to love it. Yes. Definitely. Perfectly done. Good. Ta- it's in good taste. Yeah, we start with something that's going to carry throughout the the entire book, Rap and an interrogation. And so the prelude opens uh, with Rap teaming up with Bobby Akram at a secret CIA facility. They have a guy, I think his name was Masood Haq, and they have intel that Haq was talking to a key Al-Qaeda leader, Al-Yamani, about some big plan. Pretty nebulous, and Rap, of course, is threatening to kill him unless he talks. And I, I really love this scene as an opening. And Vince is also growing and getting even better here at the setting. He talks about the, quote, facility. That's all he calls it. And it's like this country house, um, I believe out in Virginia. And he said the CIA purchased it in the 1950s for the purpose of debriefing Eastern Bloc defectors. So we already have this idea of this, like, old-timey, maybe a little decrepit, almost run-down uh, facility, and that's the whole name of it. And he's working with this Pakistani immigrant, Bobby Akram, who is fluent in Urdu, Pashto, Arabic, Farsi, and English, and he's the CIA expert on interrogations. And as often happens, he's going to play the good cop to Rap's bad cop. Yeah, I, I <clears throat> sorry, I like this scene because, as you mentioned, Vince is very good at descriptions especially descriptions of locations um and i think here understanding giving us the backstory on the facility learning about you know why it was purchased and then throwing in like he does in a lot of his novels like the history of the cia and bringing up these little tidbits and and talking about aims right you know the famed you know cia um mole or or, um yeah double agent double agent yeah that's the word i was looking for sorry um, and then, you know, the description of Bobby Akram and, and how you know, rap is good at interrogations in his own way. But this guy is, you know, from the clinical psychology point, point of it, you know, the description of him having the same suit and mm-hmm. he only ever saw, you know, to give this impression because this guy is, you know, high up in the ISI. He thinks he's 
been taken by other people on the ISI and he doesn't even know where he is and not until rap walks into the room and it's like oh oh shit uh i'm actually in the united states I, he, he then he's like i'm way more fucked than i thought i was <laughs> um but yeah like the this is sort of the whereas rap is like the hammer um bobby akram is is the, the scalpel the fine the fine tuning yeah. to get i maximize the amount of information but you know when he can't get it fast enough um yeah. he lets rap go in and lets the dog loose uh yeah can i just read this i mean can i just sure. give this quote because this is just is imagine starting a book with this the facility was not a pleasant place but it was a necessary evil in a world chock full of sadistic deeds and misguided brutal men rap flicked the safety off and pulled the hammer all the way back into the cocked position so what's it going to be masood do you want to go to work for me and see your children grow up or do you want to die? And meanwhile, there's pictures of Masood Hawk's kids laid out on the table. And just to to drop open the book that way, I just think that's brilliant by Flynn. Yeah, no, this was a great scene to start off the book with. And I, there was a, even a quote where Rap was like, because he's showing these kids because they, he also showed pictures of kids of the CIA people who had died. Yeah. And he's like, this guy thinks I'm going to kill his kids, even though he says in his mind, I, I would never kill kids. I, I'm not like them, or I'm, I would never do something like that. Um, yeah, so the rap, again, always gets what he wants, and he does a great job of doing it. Yeah, Rap might never do that, because as we talked on this book, you know, he's not ashamed by what he does, but he also doesn't glorify it. So he's showing the picture of the kids, not that he would ever do it, but he knows that's all the terrorists would respond to. He's right. entering their world of violence, you know, quote, brutal, misguided men. And he's he's using that to manipulate them, um, trying to show them, like, look, I'm just as bad as you, even though you don't expect me to be. You expect me to be a sanitized American. We have to interrogate you by slamming our fists on table but can't actually touch you. He shows this guy, and it's a theme of the book, rap's not fucking around in these interrogations. He'll play their game. Right. Cool. So after the prelude, we jump to the raid in Pakistan, which I think is one of the some of the great greatest writing uh, I've read and really engaging in this first half of the book. Um, this is probably tied with the the sequential scenes we get with the nuclear bomb down in South Carolina later on that uh, are my favorite in, in this part. But I, I really enjoyed the raid in Pakistan. So based on the information that uh, Rap gets, he, he wants to go over to Afghanistan and to Pakistan to this village where it's an Al-Qaeda stronghold. They know that there are like three top Al-Qaeda officials that potentially could be there. Um, and so he needs Kennedy to get to get the president approval. And she's essentially like, all right, don't worry about it. Go. I'll, I'll get your approval by the time you're in the air. Right. Um, and then we meet this character of, of General Harley, who I really like as a character. Um, and he has this whole plan staked out and i think the the tactical brilliance and how a battle a battle would actually go down and and how vince describes you know men coming down on the ground and the different you know specifications of the weapons and you know how they would do that and then also the descriptions of the weapons that al-qaeda would have and you know how they're gonna you know sort of plan against that as well as like this guy knows that they're gonna run into the mountains and he has something waiting for them to, to surprise them. Um, 
you know, just this, this whole plan and this whole attack was just brilliant. And yeah. the, also, the guy knows that he's been bugging, 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 bugging his superiors to go across border. You know, because this is this is a mission that is, you know, highly risky. And yeah. only this idea of, you know, because Kennedy also has some other intel that we find out based off of like the financial markets as well as, you know, some chatter that about this, you know, some attack, some attack. And so based off of this, as well as the information that Rap has gained from uh, the ISI agent, um, she's able to get the president to finally, okay, like we're going across the border and, and they don't even tell the state department that they're doing this. Right. So, well, that's, that's a cool argument that Kennedy makes. And I never thought of this before. She's using all these financial indicators to tell the president, like, hey, look, I've been at this job long enough now. I can tell when something fishy is going on. And she starts saying there are some financial irregularities. A couple of um, key um, items on the stock exchange have gone down by this many points. It's kind of like, yeah, well, that doesn't happen. But then she's able to point out that these are all foreign transactions that are betting against the United States. So all the indicators basically are people foreign, you know, entities pulling their money out of United States business and they're and basically the betting and they're putting it into gold and they're betting the US economy will go down. And for for Kennedy and the CIA, that's pretty cool that they can analyze that and realize, well, that's what would happen in a terrorist attack. You know, anyone right. with assets in the United States would lose out where if you shielded your assets and pulled them out at the right time, you're kind of um protected against an attack or from the fallout after an attack. And she convinces the president with that plus all this other data. I just thought that was a really kind of unique way of going about Kennedy's argument. Shows how smart she is. Yeah, the president even asked, like, well, is it is it possible that all these people have the same financial advisor? And it's yeah. like, maybe, but why would he be telling, you know, why are they so smart enough to know, oh, there's going to be this huge shortfall? Yeah. I wonder. Well, well they is, essentially, is... essentially do, and that financial advisor is the terrorists. Like yeah, telling exactly. their people, the people they're connected yeah. to, pull out. Also, I, I wonder if if are these similar to signals that the CIA saw before the attack on nine eleven? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. If if that was something, because you know you watch these things about nine eleven, and they all say they knew attack was coming, they knew an attack was coming, and yeah, they never say exactly how they knew attack was coming. I'm sure it's out there, you know, whatever. But well, this book I, 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 in two thousand four, I can't help but imagine. Vince was using research like that and real things that were coming out about what we did know beforehand. And no doubt the financial markets probably played a role. And that's where he got this from, knowing he was so in tune with current events and what was going on and, and researching these things. Yeah, he even places – I, I like the – you know, because these things are happening sort of outside of real world. But he does place – like he says Al-Yamani is one of the key uh, – he helped train – some of the 9-11 hijackers. That's I like right. how he places those little tidbits in here to sort of bring them right. into the real life. That's yeah. right. And now we have Al-Yamani planning something in this village. He's not there, but a couple of high up commanders planning something and, and reps there to find out what it is. Like you mentioned, though, this raid is really written spectacularly well. You have teams coming in on different choppers you have teams staging shortly uh, outside or or outside of the village by a little bit. You have a mortar team, and Vince is writing about how they could place the mortars so perfectly that while the Delta forces are going like guerrilla warfare house to house, 
and cleaning out the viper's nest, as Flynn calls it, of the terrorists hiding out. The mortars are literally blocks away. We can pinpoint them so well, making the Delta Force job even easier. Where you'd think mortars are coming in, you want to run and hide. The Delta Forces were so um, confident in the mortar teams outside the city launching precise attacks, they could do their job easier going house to house. And they almost created a funnel where the terrorists had nowhere else to go but towards the open field out into the mountains. Um, and they can like uh, funnel them into there. So, yeah, you have right. guerrilla warfare, street by street battle. You've got helicopter operations. Uh, they're moving in, I think, a Marine battalion behind the Delta Force, who's the tip of the spear. Right. Uh, you got these um, uh, mortar teams shelling the city, and it's all going down perfectly until Rap, high up in the sky in the command center, he obviously, last book, promised Anna. He kind of promised Irene he's not going to go, you know, full-on guns blazing, running into any of these war scenes after getting shot in the butt. He was going to stay up in the command center in the chopper. Well, they get a radio call on the ground that someone's calling for the CIA man because on the ground, the troops have heard this is a CIA-led operation. There's some higher up up there overseeing everything we're doing. Well, they're like, I think he's got to get down here. And so we yeah, as they, a reader. They say our, our special friend needs to come see this. special friend. I'm wondering, though, what, what are they want so badly that they're calling this guy down into the scene? Well, Rap gets there is brought into this house and uncovers a bunker. I think it's in floorboards, right? They un yeah. Under some floorboards. Oh, one of the soldiers sees the terrorist looking at it and running away. And the soldier's like, there's something weird about where that terrorist was going. They never run away. They usually confront us, right? Or throw themselves and, you know, throw women and children in front of them and we shoot them. Um, this guy tried running towards this and he was looking at the ground. Well, it was a, a secret compartment to a bunker. Rap drops in, there's radio signals, there's uh, communications equipment, and the number one thing, going back to the inside cover of this book, there's a map of D.C. Map of Washington, yeah. And, that's, and, and the kicker is, it's got concentric circles. He's got to get back to Washington, got to talk to Kennedy and the president. Yeah, on, on that note, I, I think I mentioned like this whole book is a leveling up of Vince and this was a page turner or uh, how I do, I listened to him by audiobook. you know, I just kept on pounding, 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 kept, you know, hitting next, hitting next, hitting next. And, you know, Vince is pretty common with these, you know, not huge cliffhangers, but like these mini cliffhangers at the end of books that force you to want to read the next chapter. But I think in this one, it, it just, it's gotten even better. And like what the scene you just described is one of those that, you know, and, and before that, it's, you know, Corrigan, like the master sergeant or whatever, whatever um, the NCO guy who's like, you know, you, he's got to get here. He needs to see this. That That's like the last sentence of a chapter. Um, one thing before we, we jump to our next scene, uh, there's a little like joke between Harley and Rap when he's stepping off the helicopter. He's like, um, just don't get shot. And I thought of like, <laughs> oh, he, he probably knows that, you know, last time he, he led a mission, got on the ground, he got shot. So I thought that was funny. Yeah. But yeah, and, and Hold on, like you, you know. said with the cliffhangers, I just found it when Rap finds the map in the bunker. I just love this. So just to read a quote here. He moved closer, studying the map that he knew all too well. The rivers, roads, parks and landmarks were all in infinitely familiar to him. Finding such a map in this remote village was enough to give him pause. But in and of itself, 
It wasn't enough to explain his growing alarm. The margins were filled with notes written in Arabic, analyzing the weather patterns for the region in question. Rap stepped back, wondering how much time he had, his head swimming with disastrous possibilities. He had seen this type of map before. It was used to measure the destructive power of a nuclear weapon, and it appeared Washington, D.C. was the target. When you read that, you're just like, oh, shit, like this is what this book about. You know, like we're now, what, 13 chapters in? And, you know, the book's going pretty well. And, you know, like there's attack that's going to happen. Um, you know, I'm, I'm engaged. But then once I hear that or read that, sorry. Um, you're not putting it down. Like, no. Like, all right, now now let's go. Let's yep. go. <laughs> yep. The next kind of storyline we're going to cover is what's going on in between the scenes. You know, a lot of the thriller genre and particularly Flynn is flip flopping between scenes. Well, from chapter one. We see a shady character somewhere off the waters waters of the U.S., still in international waters out in the Caribbean, but getting close to the Florida Keys and the Florida Straits from Cuba, I believe. He's coming. And it seems like there's this, this, this captain of a boat who just got hired, and he takes all these odd jobs and you know independent jobs to make some side money, and he gets this client, wealthy client, who wants to come to Florida, you know, Simple mission, pick them up, drive them in, routine. However, the captain, going about his day, sees the man come up from the cabin below deck, stands behind him, and we get a really creepy description of this man as he stabs a knife into his back. And the guy who was the passenger takes over the boat, and he has full command. He studied how to be uh, a captain. He knows boating, and he knows the seas, and and throws the body overboard of the captain he just killed, turns out that's Al-Yamani, the terrorist who we had just heard about, and the terrorist we heard plan 9-11. So we're like, oh shit, this guy's in open waters, about to enter the U.S. And uh, another one of those cutscenes that leaves us wondering, where's right. he going and what's he going to do? And upon reread, there's a lot of foreshadowing, uh, or at least I was able to pick out a lot of foreshadowing in this book. You know, There's this little description of like this secret flotation device that the guy's wearing that you know if you weren't a avid sailor or a mariner you, you would notice that he was actually wearing like this ring that would inflate and i was like oh well that's obviously why you know the guy lives or is able to be picked up and that leads you know later on in the book that allows them to trace and, and track and like that'll be important later but you know when you're just reading that it, it's just oh you sort of a throwaway type thing yeah um i really enjoyed that yeah, but one of these other cutscenes that we get is this, you know, pretty nervous scientist, Zubair, um, arriving on LAX. And he's able to, you know, he's studied, you know, he's, you know, flown various different pathways to sort of um, get around coming in. He is super nervous. He gets, uh, you know, gets through security pretty much unscathed. Although there's another foreshadowing moment where. You know, he's like sweating and the guy asks him if he's okay. And, you know, secretly the guy, you know, is telling them to run like facial recognition, which will, which will come play in later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then next we have the cutscene where al Yamani has, he's arrived in Florida. He's in this, you know, sort of, uh, wildlife like marsh, preserve, like a swamp marsh. Yeah. Where he comes ashore finally and he has a contact, this, um, Kuwaiti, uh, scientist or, um, student who's studying at uh, UCF who's there to pick him up 
and it's in this chapter that we find out or he he tells us that you know he's not he's sick because he's dying of radiation poisoning as well as you know he shaved his beard in order to you know change his appearance as well as you know he has this prosthetic leg he he couldn't that's the reason why he had to come in by boat he couldn't just take a plane because he walks he walks in a very distinctive way that would tip off things so you know the pieces are sort of falling into place we have these very well we don't yet know you know the extent of his plan and as well as like what's the scientist doing you know what's going on yeah but we have shady characters entering the u.s by air and by sea and uh some really deep cliffhangers and that's going to kind of the the picture is going to kind of get put together once rap starts uncovering more of this plot and actually with our next storyline with some interrogations would you say chris the different interrogation scenes were also a highlight of this book i definitely think so yeah definitely definitely so, I mean, we're putting the pieces together and wrap. One thing he takes from the mission in Pakistan are these maps and the other intelligence. But rap being rap, the best kind of intelligence is human intelligence. He's got five guys with him that they were able to capture. And they're trying to they're going back to the U.S. to one of the safe houses. And rap is planning out. How am I going to get these guys to sing? How am I going to make it happen? He teams up with Urda, right? That was the name. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. And um, he's play. He again is working with him to kind of get a good cop, bad cop thing going on. Erda knows there's going to be some shady stuff. He's kind of okay, you know, knowing Rap's going to push some buttons, but he is not ready for the lengths that Rap is going to go to. He takes these guys into a barn, and um, Rap tells Erda like, "You're going to have to be okay with some level of." what other people might call torture here, right? Because we need information. We know there's a bomb. The the ante has just been up. The stakes have just been raised. So he takes these guys, bound and gagged, lines them up on their knees, and he's looking at them, and he realizes a couple of these guys are the leaders. They're older. They're hardened. They're radicalized to the point it would take way too long to get something out of them, and we don't have time knowing we just found this map. So right in front of all of them, doesn't even miss a beat, boom, shoots one of them right in the head. Yep. So this, you know, the interrogation scenes and, you know, the he's like, uh, shit's going to go down. You have to be okay with it. And then knowing that he, these guys are not going to talk, or at least this Al Hurry guy is not going to talk, and he's actually probably, anything he does say is going to affect me trying to get information out of someone else. So he, on the fly, he decides, I'm, I'm going to kill this dude. Yeah. Uh, these scenes I, I mentioned to this and may, maybe we could do a bonus pod on this movie and it, it reminds me of a Samuel L. Jackson movie uh, which is about the subject of torture and it's about a um, uh, you know a nuclear bomb and where he has to do these interrogations in order to find um, and it's called Unthinkable so maybe maybe we could mm. watch that movie do, do a do a pod yeah. on that and, That'd and be a good one. sort of discuss a little bit more this idea of torture and necessary evils that I think um, Rap has to do in order to you know, get information. Yeah. So and, You know, it sounds like a great movie to watch. I bet the premise is very similar to what Vince is going for here because this one line here tells me that Vince gets it, right? Yeah. He writes in chapter 20, quote, In the safe and sterile newsrooms, in the marble halls of Congress, It was easy to second-guess decisions and find fault. Out here on the battlefield, 
things were far less certain. Moral ambiguity, rather than clarity, was the norm. What Rapp was about to do would be seen as barbaric by many of the same people whose lives he was trying to save. This was the sad irony of his life, that he would have to kill to save. Yeah, no, that sums it up right there. That's Mitch's philosophy, and that's probably some semblance of the truth, you know, wouldn't you say? Like, we did a few months ago the movie of the DCIs and the directors of Central Intelligence, and torture came up, and a couple of them, even being America's lead spy and spy master, they kind of squirmed. They they yeah. got a little uncomfortable in the chair, in the interview chair, uh, when torture came up, and like... That's because it's probably real, right? They were all they all know the irony. You would have to kill to save in some cases. And uh Yeah. And I think if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, then I don't know. Something's probably messed up in, in you're, yeah, a psycho. You're, you're a psycho. <laughs> um Yeah, but uh, this is a topic of discussion that I'm not qualified to answer, but mm-hmm. when we could we could discuss at length the how much torture is good torture and what is classified as actual torture. I mean, obviously killing somebody (laughs) or or even this, or even just like everyone I think would have to agree when you have actionable intelligence that a nuclear weapon is going to go off in a city like Washington, you know, Mm -hmm. the bar is raised, right. Or like the standards are lowered of what torture might look like, because if someone like rap is going to be handcuffed at the same time, we literally have actionable intelligence of a bomb in Washington, DC and a nuke, expected to go off to me it like it kind of changes the question you know like i believe in moral as- ab- absolutes right there's good and bad but we also have to understand the reality of the world and this gray zone when you're looking at what upwards of at least three four million americans and then over time with the fallout and the wider radius even more over decades you know do the games change at all or do the standards change i i kind of feel they have to be shift it a little bit like shift the goalposts in that scenario yeah it's something we could have know. a conversation on on, the, on on another pod but it's deep man there's it's deep there's this other quote um when he's talking or he's, i guess he's deciding about or maybe it's right after he killed Al hurry but mitch says he wasn't sure if he believed in hell but if a place truly existed Al hurry was on his way i don't know i just i, I like that quote for some reason yeah you you get a little bit insight into you know Mitch is not Mitch is not a religious person but he sure knows that killing this dude was was a good thing like you know this guy was not a good dude no. was not going to help him in any way and he was a bad hombre <laughs> bad hombre but all right so we he does you know based on these tactics he's able to gain some information especially from you know this youngest uh, of the prisoners uh, Ahmed. And he's the computer guy. So he, they're able to gain a lot of information about how Al-Qaeda is you know, going very low-tech, either using um, you know, these actual handwritten messages or also you know, going to these message boards that are very hard to, you know, because they're so inundated. The NSA can't really, I'm sure they are now, but back in 2004, um, you know, and aren't really paying that much attention to because they're un, unencrypted, right? Um, and he also, you know, Finds it tells them that there is a nuclear bomb, and as well as information, they gain information about these missing uh, Pakistani nuclear scientists. And then he switches to Abdullah, and Abdullah is you know not going to come as easily as Ahmed. He rep sort of picked Ahmed because he could see he was you know 
the weakest link. He was also the one yeah. who recognized him because he's the computer guy. He, he yeah. obviously has seen a picture of Mitch. That and Mitch was outed. Angel, Angel of Death. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but Abdella is not going to come as easily. And there's this point where it's, it's a uh, a concept that's brought up multiple times, this idea of, you know, and I guess that is a problem with torture. Are people just going to tell you information just to get you to stop? And it, it could be mm-hmm. not not good information. And this is this is one of the instances where we, where we see this happening. You know, Mitch shoots Abdullah in the kneecaps as well as uh, this other guy, and then Aldine, right? Then decides to kill Aldine in order to get Abdullah to talk. Finally, gets him to talk, and he says he's going to come by plane. Um, and we find out that this is not you know this is not the case, and actually this hinders their finding because rap sends this information back to Kennedy. Obviously this takes resources away from people. They're certainly looking at like, you know, planes coming in, you know, whatever. And this pisses rap off so much so that he well, goes I think back. Also somebody on the national security council says, Oh, if it's coming by plane, that's fine because we have sensors, right? Our airports right. are so good and we scan planes and it's hard to land anonymously. So people are kind of like, Oh, if it comes by plane, that's the easiest way to catch it. And, not good thing to tell rap because rap knows that the terrorists wouldn't succumb that easily. They, they'd yeah. have a, a way around that or a smarter plan than that. And then it's not until rap and Erda and, and Erda's guys who are combing through all this Intel that they gained from the place that they find these uh, bills of lading, right. For these various ships. And, you know, there's a couple that are left like three weeks ago from Pakistan and that are heading to these four different ports. And he's like, all right, Erda lied to me, and he goes back to him, and finally he was able to get the information out of out of not Erda, sorry, Abdullah lied to him. He gets Abdullah gets the information that it it's actually coming today, and it's arriving by ship. Yeah. Um, and it's like, oh, here's another, one other one of those oh shit moments that you know the nuke is are potentially already there. Yeah, and I mean, you don't want to piss rap off by getting caught in a lie. I mean, he even says. Quote, the call to Kennedy would have to wait until he had the chance to ask Abdullah why he lied to him. And this time, each lie would cost him a finger. We got kneecaps, we got fingers, and we got bullets in the head. This sounds about quintessential rap. Uh, Yeah, exactly. He also gets the specific intelligence about Charleston, right? Initially, there were four ports. We weren't sure if the nuke was coming to New York. What was it? New York, Charleston. Baltimore. Baltimore. There was one in the Gulf. Miami. It was Miami or somewhere on the Gulf. Maybe Houston, actually. But basically, by threatening to cut the fingers off and catching Abdullah in a lie and killing his friend right in front of him, we get more specifics that, no, it's coming to Charleston. It's coming today. And the boat left Karachi three weeks prior so we can actually track. And that's how they're going to get moving on actually tracking this thing down. Yeah. And there's actually a little bit of... uh foreshadowing for the next book in these lines where he asks um either he asked Erda or he asked one of like the 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 guys who are coming to the intelligence and he's like oh there's information on you here and he asked oh do they have like my house address or whatever and he's like no i I don't think so yet and as i was reading that i just i couldn't help to think about the next book and how people do get the address you know to mitch's house and it plays a, a big role we'll talk about that in the consent to kill pod but you know, you brought this up to me earlier. We were when, before we were, before we were recording. We were talking about how one of the good things uh, about executive power was that it sets the stage for 
the Saudis being these bad guys and how, you know, we find out at the end, you know, the, the Saudis were sort of controlling a lot of the things. And this is going to be a through line through this book as well as through, you know, the next couple books. Um, and you couldn't help but think that, oh, the Saudis actually did get Mitch's address and, you know, yeah. gave it to someone. Even it makes consent to kill. I know it's next month, but all the more sweeter that last book we had Mitch getting outed by what was it? That senator, the congressman on live TV. Yep. And his identity's outed. The, you know, while we also have the Saudi royal family having some shady stuff going on. And before that, we had um, Hank Clark and his maneuvering. And all of that is slowly building up to rap becoming more vulnerable. So it's like the payoff at the end of Consent to Kill is so much sweeter because we've had all these books chipping away at Rap's vulnerabilities and not his own vulnerabilities. It's other corrupt politicians and other foreign uh, diplom diplomats and other governments uh, that have eroded away. And ult uh, ultimately, it's going to affect Rap's personal life in ways that are transformational. So just makes Consent to Kill even more of a landmark novel right man that's a good one it is a good washington one. a lot of this book how would it be a flynn book without, without having yep. the political landscape what's going on in washington who's shaking hands slapping backs in which steakhouses and of course we get that um so our, our next storyline uh second to last before we wrap up here is something going on with the attorney general we have martin stokes back at the OEOB, the old executive office building next to the, the White House. And one of his um, assistants or secretaries, Peggy Steely, and she's a top lawyer. She's very cunning. We hear she's almost like a whirlwind, any meeting or room she goes into. She's a force to be reckoned with. But she has a history of uh, relationship with Martin Stokes, her boss, and so she uses that to get some leverage against being fired by him. So She's playing the political game, and he's playing the political game because he's trying to get recognized by the president for an even sweeter gig. He's your typical politician. Peggy Steely is your typical Washington insider lawyer or political operative. And then we meet Patrick Holmes, another one of these um, characters. He's the Democratic National uh, Party chairperson, so he's the DNC. He's at the steakhouses. He's meeting with Steely. They're discussing the party and the platform. I mean, Vince again nails the politics. Just listen to this. It's a quote with the scene of the DNC talking to the assistant to the attorney general. Holmes had learned the hard way that the base of his party meant the 10% who were so far to the left, they were completely out of touch with the values of the vast majority of middle America. If they had it their way, they would lead the party right over the edge of a cliff into the great abyss of fanatical liberalism. I mean, apply that both ways. We have extremists on both the far left and the far right, and they're eclipsing the vast majority of Americans, you know, in the middle, the centrists, who have their values, and both parties, both the extreme left and extreme right, are out of touch with the vast majority of Americans. I think that nails I, it. I think you could drop that quote uh, right into today. Exactly. Vince, Vince sums up 2020 uh, in 2004. Uh, it just shows you that it's it's been persistent for a long time. So. Exactly. Anyways. Uh... Yeah. Well, the long game anyway, just to wrap that up, is Steely's going to try to get her boss, the AG, on the ticket to run yes. as vice president. Do you think – I wanted to ask you about that just as a, you know, 
you're more of a political guy than I am. Uh, you know, obviously they could spin this as, oh, Baxter wants to retire. Um, I'm sure that would be like the official story. You know, the unofficial is that he's being forced out mm-hmm. and that if he doesn't go quietly, he's going to, you know, they're going to ruin his life. Um, it's very House of Cards-esque. Yeah. But um, do you think that would ever happen? Has that ever happened where uh, someone who changes running mates mid-ticket, like mid-going um, forward? I believe there was one instance where a sitting president dropped the vice president on the re-election ticket. I believe. Don't know. You're the history exactly. buff. You're supposed to, you're supposed yeah, to know this. I don't have, I know. I don't have that one on the tip of my tongue right now, but um, I believe it's happened. I believe it's extraordinarily rare. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. I mean, legally there's no, no trouble with it, but um, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm at a loss on whether or not it's happened recently. Uh, it's okay. You can cut that. You got me. You got me. <laughs> um, Right, so we are introduced to these, you know, we're introduced to Steely, we're introduced to Stokes. While everything is going on in Afghanistan and Pakistan, you know, Mitch is constantly feeding back information to Irene. She, you know, she obviously knows that what's going on, she knows that something's supposed to happen, and this just causes everything to go up a notch. And this is something interesting, and I read these books, and I actually learn, I, I mean, I'm, I, I do look up, to make sure you know fact check whatever but it, the stuff that you know vince gets right and then i actually am able to learn from these books is i had no idea that this, the dci could enact cog enact the continuity of government uh that to me was kind of crazy that she had the power or they have the power to do that um yeah and this is exactly what she does she calls up Warch, tells him that she's doing this and this whole scene with Warch. Yeah, uh, the the little five minute chapter or you know couple page chapter of Warch deciding what to do with the president, he decides he's going to take him out by you know this quick uh, evacuation te- techniques, gets him into stagecoach and it takes fifty two seconds. Like that was a, that was a really cool scene and just shows you like the, I think Vince even mentions that in the world of personal protection, the C- the Secret Service are the best. They yeah. they train for these things. They do mock drills. Uh, have you have you ever watched the videos of them like driving stagecoach and doing like evasive maneuvers at like um what Andrews Air Force Base on like the tarmacs? Oh, uh, they're nasty. They're friggin' awesome. Like the the stuff that they can do with the limousine is yeah, amazing. The beast. You know, speaking of that, though, Warch has another decision to make. He's also playing how it would go over whisking the first uh, the first lady out, and he's thinking like, all right. First lady wouldn't want us, wouldn't accept us going into the bunker. So I got to do this instead. She's not going to, you know, take well to being told, go here, go there. And so he just has a plan in place that has all of that, has a contingency for all of that. And 52 seconds to get a safe and full evacuation of the president. I don't, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Right. Well, um, there's one other character and one other location that's really well described this JCTC. The Joint Counter Terrorism Center, which and will Vince, be key in a couple books, right? It's a huge thing, and Vince writes about this out in Tyson's Corner, and it was a facility for both the FBI counterterrorism and CIA counterterrorism to collaborate a little better. Yeah, work together um, after to work 9/11. together, particularly after nine eleven. You know, a big push was to share intelligence across the board, and so tapped from the FBI to work there and lead that is Skip. 
And Skip is going to go on a little later in the book, some other missions and side stories with rap. But right now he's in charge of the FBI wing at the JCTC. And someone else coming there is Steely from the attorney general's office because she is one of his advisors for national security and counterterrorism. So Steely and Skip are going to have to work together here on the intelligence gathering uh, side of things, stateside. And then another uh, person brought into the fold of those conversations from a secret DOE or Department of Energy facility is Secretary Reimer. And he was a Navy SEAL. And so he brings his Navy SEAL leadership capacities to the Department of Energy, which is really cool because I never think of them as an operational organization. Department of Energy, you're thinking, you know, a bunch of chemical engineers, you know, and scientists. And it's really cool to have this uh, Navy SEAL background guy as the secretary in charge of it. And he's running these nest teams and these nuclear evacuation and safety teams. And so really cool seeing him operate, lead that charge. But while all that's happening, we get one other bunker that they're contemplating bringing the president and evacuating the federal government to. And they actually get him there. Site R. And like you said, Chris, we learn a lot by reading the books. This is pretty cool that I really didn't know much about. It's a facility uh, in Raven Rock Mountain on the border between Pennsylvania and Maryland. So roughly an hour and a half or so outside of Washington. And it's a bunker built to survive a nuclear attack. And while there's other facilities like Mount Weather for running different federal agencies, Site R in Raven Rock is the one in the event of a nuclear attack where the Pentagon can be fully operational, where DOD can have, you know, all things running smoothly. And so the NSC is meeting virtually from all these different locations coming together with the president at Site R. And we have some people who are also at Mount Weather, right? And there's some at Mount Weather. I forget which agencies are operating from there, but they get these virtual. Hey, they knew about Zoom calls back then. I know. (laughs) They get these virtual talks so the National Security Council can get a handle of what's going on. So, Right. And so all of this is leading up to our last storyline that we're going to talk about, which is, you know, the, the bomb and tracking where it is. It's sort of, you know, Again, Vince is cutting back and forth between a bunch of different players. So we have, you know, some Muslims who are living in Atlanta who have this trunk of company. They're on their way to the port in, in South Carolina. Meanwhile, Al-Yamani, he's driving up. He's also going to South Carolina. They sort of go check it out, make sure nothing is crazy. This guy's been, the his accomplice who picked him up has been researching and looking at the port, you know, trying to, you know, do uh, recon and they finally perch themselves in a place where they can actually see the boats coming in and finally they see the madagascar he the only one he knows which ship it's on and he's like oh that there's the ship it's you know right on time and the nuke is in is in the building uh rap's able to get information based on you know the stuff that they find in pakistan they know that these four ships are coming in. They know that there's these four. Um, they now they stop looking at airports and focus on these four ports. And it was kind of cool that there's this other scene where, you know, Flood is like, all right, you know, I, I love Flood. He, he takes control. Yes. 
and he's like, all right, we have these, we know where these four boats are. Two of them are still out to sea. One of them's in the Chesapeake, uh, but this one's actually in the port. He's like, oh shit. All right, well, let's, you know, let's send, we, let's, we, they send the nest team down there. There's this short little chapter where the seals actually come in. It's, it's a really, really cool, like just short little snapshot chapter where I'm like, what, what are they doing? Um, and they go into the boat that's in the Chesapeake and they, they come in, they take it down. Like uh, they even like, there's a description where like the, the captain is driving and next thing you know, he sees this like red dot and he's like, he puts two and two together. Like what, what the hell's going on? They're able to secure that boat. And, this and they don't culminates. find anything right on that one. That one's clean. Uh, they don't find any radiation on that boat. Uh, they eventually find out that all these four boats did have something on yes, them. Yes, the trigger the devices. Other, yeah, like the fire set, right. uh, the different explosives. Uh, that boat didn't have anything that was in the in the That's container right. question. Didn't didn't have any nuclear. Um, but, but it's definitely a component. Correct. One of the coolest scenes that I really liked, and I, I, the, the the suspense that you know, as you're reading this, as you're listening to this was, you know, very gripping, um, kept you reading was, you know, when this Hanasek character and Reimer, they're communicating, they, she comes in, first of all, she tells like the FBI agents, get rid of the, <laughs> get rid of their windbreakers. Yeah. Um, don't want, you know, people don't walk around the docks wearing, wearing ties, you know, cause who knows if the terrorist, that, that's the big thing they don't know. Is this thing live? Yeah. Will they just decide to cut bait and, you know, well, let's just take Charleston off the map. At least we had an attack on the United States. So they have to, you know, do this in somewhat of a secret manner. Ultimately, this half the reason why the FBI is showing up is half the reason why Al-Yamani sees this happening and you know, decides to cut bait. He's all, constantly, he's like, all right, well, and th- that begins this whole idea of, oh, there's something else going on, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, but the whole the nest scene um, team scene where they get they suit up and uh, I was just geeking out as a nerd. I'm not a nuclear scientist. I'm, I'm a biologist, but I, I still enjoyed like the whole science of that. You know, bringing in these equipment and uh, yep. doing the X-rays, and then again we get this. You know, the little the sudden little thrillers, and she's like, you know, Rhymer, are, are you seeing this? Like, Take one deeper, and then boom, we uh, and then there's the, this description of this special nuclear material. Yeah, uh, that that was just very you know chilling to me. It's like, oh crap, it was. And Yamani is watching it. He's sitting on like a rooftop or something, and he sees that the FBI is there. And at the National Security Council, one of the big arguments was, do we tip our hand? Because if we order a complete lockdown, we know the ship is in harbor. If we start evacuating and the terrorists are tipped off, can they trigger this thing right here and now? So Al Yamani seeing the FBI, seeing the DOE team, I'm wondering, crap, does he have the ability to blow up Charleston right now? And Rapp's argument, because you gotta remember, Kennedy actually brings Rapp into one of these NSC meetings, and Rapp says, Everybody, slow your roll. If we make ourselves known that we're onto this right. in any way through an evacuation, or if we let the press, you know, Rapp hates them. If we let the press get wind of this and the terrorists find out we're onto them, this thing is in port. They could blow at any time. We just don't know. So Rap convinces them, you know, kind of slow down, let our teams do their job, let the Nest team, let the DOE go in there, figure out what's going on. And instead of causing a panic, the president agrees and says, okay, we'll let them work. And once we know if this thing is operational, we'll know if we need to evacuate and cause a lockdown or not. And thankfully, 
the expertise of Hanasek and Reimer figure out, yes, it's radioactive material. No, it cannot be detonated on its own. It needed the other components. Yeah, so they successfully recovered the nuclear material. A lot of politicos back in Washington are celebrating, even on the National Security Council. Some people think it's done and dusted. And we did it, right? That's the win. Now, something doesn't sit right with Rapp and Kennedy. There's some other shady intel. They found some maps of the Caspian Sea, which are going to play a role. You know, Iran and the Kazakh border. Right. And they're just not sure. So we have this this on the back of our minds. But that's going to come later. Because now you have some people who are celebrating that this is all over. And the press gets wind that there was an evacuation. Key government personnel are holed up in these bunkers. And there's a lot of maneuvering to get the press to not cover this and right. to, in some sense, sneak the president back into the White House and say that everything was fine all along. Yeah. The, but I'm reading this and on, on reread, I, you know, I had forgotten like the second half of the book and I'm like, wow, they, they foiled the first plot, you know, a little bit more than halfway through. I'm like, what? Yep. I'm thinking to myself, what, what is the rest of the book about? And there's been little breadcrumbs, like you mentioned, these things about pointing to, obviously, Al-Yamani decides to cut bait as soon as he sees the FBI. So you know that he probably has something else attacked. Something else you know, planned. Something yeah. else planned. But yeah, I'm just thinking the whole time, I'm like, what, what's going to happen? Um, and we'll obviously talk about it next pod. But yeah, no, I, I, and again, the the cliffhangers in, in this first half were just really well done. Yeah. And one other key thing linking to the second half of the book that happens here is the truck drivers who pulled into Charleston Port and a reason Rapp didn't want to evacuate. And thankfully, yes. he convinced the the Security Council and the president not to lock down is the truck drivers came to pick up the bomb <laughs> and FBI was able to apprehend him. And they're going to play a big role. Again, interrogation is a theme of this book. They're going to play a, a key role in Rapp and Kennedy figuring out what is Al-Yamani up to next. There's got to be more to the story than this one half completed nuclear device in Charleston. Yep. So it's pretty much where we uh, where we leave it. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's get get into some of our thoughts on this first half. Um, so we wanted to introduce a new new segment to the pod. Uh, we haven't quite come up with a name yet, um, but for now, we're just going to call it what's in a name. And we wanted to we talk, talk about the cover. But we also should talk about the name of the novel, and maybe one time we'll go, we'll go and we'll talk about the names of the past ones that we haven't done. But let's just start with Memorial Day. So what do you think about the title, Memorial Day, and how aptly it describes this book? All right. Well, I guess we should include the tidbit then. It happens in Chapter 35, where Memorial Day actually comes up. Yes. And unfortunately, for loving this book, and it nearly being a 10 out of 10, this title almost came out of left field in the sense that Kennedy looks at all the intelligence and knows there must be a bigger end game. Yes. And we randomly find out that the World War II memorial is scheduled to be dedicated. And yeah, it's she just was like, randomly, I, I can't even believe you know, I didn't think about this earlier, you know. But here's the thing. It randomly happens that I think three or four other heads of state are in town, including yes. major heads of state, you know, Great Britain, France, uh, Russia, I think, right? Um, yeah, something like that. And so I'm like, how did you not connect the dots of this potential terrorist attack? The minute you saw the map 
in the bunker in Pakistan, immediately your mind thinks we're going to have multiple heads of state in Washington or, for the dedication ceremony on Memorial Day. Or the minute that she has like some suspicion about the financial markets, she's like, yeah, oh, this is having Friday. And then immediately the next Friday or Saturday is this huge event that someone could take out not only the president, but, you know, the leaders of, you know, the G5 or whatever, yeah. G8. You know, I, I, that's a little bit slipping up on Irene there a little bit, you know, yeah. very out of character for Irene. It was a little out of character. It was out of the blue kind of thrown in there. And so to make the title of the book Memorial Day because of that kind of oddly fitting puzzle piece, maybe doesn't land it as well as the rest of the book pretty much lands everything. Yeah, It's a catchy title. It just I don't know if it relates so much to everything. Uh, and the true plot of the book, it pretty much just relates to this couple of paragraph side note that's mentioned in passing. So, yeah, uh, I guess. Yeah. Unlike previous books where there's a little bit of, you know, double entendres or double exactly. meanings, um, there, there really isn't double meaning. But I was trying to think of what would a better title for this book? And I, I couldn't really think of one. So, yeah. Same here. I mean, I don't mean to criticize something without having an alternative, but um, yeah. But what did we like? One thing we did, yeah. yeah. No, one one thing we did like about this was the action. So, if you had to pick your favorite action scene so far, what would you say? Like in this half, I have to go with that raid in the village in Pakistan. Right. I think having a military operation planned out that well and in such detail was perfect like it was a couple of perfect chapters of writing in the thriller genre so that sticks out to me it's where i want to see rap embedded in the middle east doing what he does catching terrorists and interrogating them that whole sequence nailed it for me how about you yeah same i i would have that and then second to me was the nest scenes like the investigation on the you know coming in and like I said, I'm I'm a science nerd, so I, I like that stuff. Um, yeah, but definitely the the technicality that Vince puts into uh, the operations in Pakistan was was great. Definitely yeah. stands out. So next question for you: We had a lot of characters so far in this book, and even more yeah, to come. Uh, who was your favorite? Uh, but here's the thing: we have all these characters, but we don't have the usuals. We don't have Scott. Um, right. We don't have, we have a lot of new Strobel new characters to the world. Yeah. So who, who was your favorite then of maybe not a new character, but someone who plays a role in this book who's not rap? Um, it'd probably be Paul Reimer. I, I, I like that, you know, Vince makes him a, a former Navy SEAL commander. I think he was a leader of one of the, one of the SEAL teams, maybe in SEALs team six. I forget if he says, but, um, you know, this is some guy and like, like you had mentioned, I don't think of the DOE as having people have this you know seal team experience obviously the seals are very smart and i i think you know someone who's going to lead these teams and it's very similar you know you have high trained specialists that need to come into a place and and do a job so he, he doesn't dick around he gets the job done uh i really like that character but what about you mike well it's connected to that i would go with the lady uh Hanasek. i forget her first name uh exactly but yeah, she was Debbie like Reimer's maybe? field I Debbie, I think, yeah. She's actually on the ground. She is no-nonsense, smart. She is with it. She's almost the nerdy science version of a rap. Like, rap yeah. does whatever it takes to do his job. She's that way for the Department of Energy. 
whatever it takes on the ground, thinking outside the box, you know, making the FBI agents take off their windbreakers so they're not, you know, recognized as easily. She was a great character and she worked well. Like if she was on one of Reimer's SEAL teams, you know, like the way she's on her his DOE team, it was a perfect partnership. Their communication back and forth, even in the thick of it, even when they're uncovering nuclear material in a harbor, like the way they communicated so clearly and operationally just was fantastic. Right. All right, let's get into some winners and losers. Who Who's your winners of the book? Everything, man. I mean, <laughs> this was one of my favorites of all time. Everything Vince did in this book, the cliffhangers at the end of chapters, the gripping action, the military descriptions, the political um, scheming back in Washington, I think he nails every aspect of that and um, just did a great job. So I'm going to leave it at that as my winner, that this thing overall is a knockout for me. How about you? Yeah, um, similar to that, mine is Vince Flynn. You know, I, I mentioned that this is, I, I view this book as a leveling up for Vince Flynn. He really, he knows what he wants to write. He knows the type of book that he wants to put out there. And I really like that. Yeah. I guess one other thing I would add is uh, the locations. You know, the way we get descriptions of this Raven Rock site R, the bunker we talked about. A DOE site, a secret one is even mentioned. The battlefield description in Pakistan. Uh, the Charleston Harbor with the shipping containers. I imagined yeah. almost like a video game, right? Um, there was some Call of Duty video game where you're in shipping containers and fighting around them and climbing them. I almost felt that way. I was in Charleston Harbor, you know, on a secret mission to uncover something in the shipyard. Uh, I thought the settings and the locations also leveled up for me in this book. Uh, another winner is uh, No Anna. No Anna. That, that's true. Well, that's key. She doesn't hold rap back here or doesn't hold the story back. I feel like yeah, Vince's no, writing can flourish when he doesn't have to deal. You know, he doesn't every other chapter, every three chapters have to come back to Mitch thinking, what would Anna be, you know, wondering about this? I think he's free to to just let Mitch be Mitch. Be Mitch. Yeah. And I think, you know, may, maybe he's learned something here. Um, not having Anna in the book is uh, makes the book better. Yeah. Could be something. Well, there's not much for me, but uh, if you had to give us some losers of the first half of this book, some things that didn't work out or didn't click for you, where are you going? It's uh, kind of hard to pick a loser um, in this first half. If I had to, it would be the Steely Stoke line, um, mainly because we don't get a lot of that. It That that definitely picks up more so in the second half. Um, but yeah, like, I guess that's like the, the weakest part of the first half, if I had yeah. to say, the loser. Yeah, I, I would say that too, although there is a payoff in the second half. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering why this Steely character is being given so much page time or, or words right. on a page, how much she's been written in. But Rap does face off with her in the second half, not yeah, to give no, away too it much. Pays off. It pays and off. And there is a payoff of Rap, you know, giving it to her. So um, we had to know who she was for the payoff of Rap to uh, shut her down in the second half. And the, the other thing I was almost going to say was a loser. I didn't understand Rap's argument to not close the port. Why was he so gung-ho on let's not evacuate? I'm like, there's a nuclear weapon on a ship. So at first I was like, 
that's that's weak. Why is rap saying don't evacuate, don't lock down? Like we got the nuke, it's over. But I was being played. I was being played because rap is secretly something doesn't sit well that there's more to the story, that we're only halfway through the book, that Al Yamani has a backup device. And so hint, spoiler right. alert, there's gonna be a second nuclear device. And so I think Vince got me. I, initially, I questioned that decision by Rap. I was like, what bigger fish are there to fry than saving people and preventing a nuke from going off in the country? Let's evacuate. Let's lock down. But there are bigger fish catching a second nuke and preventing that from going off. So right. it ended up being <clears throat> being a positive in the end. Yeah. All right. We did it. Well, that's our first half. Second half coming to you next week. And we will go from chapter roughly 49 to the very end. We'll give you our winners and losers and final rating of the book. And one of our favorite segments on the show, our discussion of the covers. So I'm intriguing to see the cover that makes no sense. Is there one? So there is one. And by the way, guys, on our social media, our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, we will be posting all of the covers of Memorial Day. So feel free to chime in and comment and tell us your favorite uh, cover. And Chris, yes, one of those covers will be a random, but I am happy to say there are no power lines. Okay, good. But if, if I saw a power line again, I might go ape shit. <laughs> okay, but they are replaced by something that might be worse. Oh I'm not kidding. All right. All right. Well, we'll get into that. They are replaced by something similar to a power line. That is not a power line. We'll leave it at that. <sighs> All right. I should be in charge of like artistic covers. I would make them like actually irrelevant to the damn book. Anyways, <sighs> as we always have to do, we have to thank our patrons, including our special operator, Sherry F., and our special agents, uh, George, Matt, Don, Dennis, Roman, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, and Jeff. Thank you guys very much. Please, 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 can't say this enough. Subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at mitrappod.com or using our Twitter and Instagram handle at mitrappod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Just a disclaimer, this podcast is not affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster, but thank you to them for bringing us the wonderful world of rap. And the music soundtrack is Gorilla Tactics by Raphael Crooks.